enunciate. Oh, table service. All right. Zechariah 4, verses 1 to 2. Then the angel who talked to me, who talked with me, returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. And Revelation 1, verses 12 and 13, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. All very lampstandy. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll be beginning our sermon series on the book of Revelation. And so when considering what to speak about in these weeks prior, I had to think, what's a good appetizer for Revelation? And what goes well with the words of John the Revelator as he revelates to us? What do we normally get out of Revelation when we engage with it? Because if you're like me, this probably isn't going to be the first time you've gone through this very mysterious book at the back of the Bible. I know that we've done a Revelation series here at least once before in my duration in the crowd here, in the congregation. And I know that I've heard Revelation series before, but I feel like I often hear them and then come away not knowing a lot more about Revelation. Which means that maybe I'm doing something wrong when I listen to it. So the feelings I come away with are usually like this. First, it's cool. And by cool, I mean it has a lot of the features of things that we normally associate with entertaining literature. Particularly for younger boys, not only for them, because it's full of armies and angels and fire-breathing locust monsters. And there's a fight with the devil. The devil gets beat up. He gets punished. That's something that we like to read about. So there's a cool factor there that you normally have to hunt pretty hard for in other elements of the Bible. Because it's not a book written to be cool. It's God relating to us. But this also means that it's kind of weird. And these are not usually words you associate with the character of Scripture, but I'm going there. It's weird for the same reasons, because it's full of dragons and angels and fire-breathing locust monsters, and these are not things we are used to handling in Scripture. We don't really know how to deal with them sometimes. And there's images that don't quite make sense. A constant parade of angels with bowls and trumpets and breaking seals. And this enormous relief we get, finally, when Jesus shows up to dismantle all this strangeness, that often we miss how strange it is the way that Jesus comes, our suffering savior coming in on a horse with a sword ready to make war. So it's cool and it's weird and we often end up seeing it as a puzzle. After the thousand years that are talked about there where Christ reigns literal, or is it going to get better before it gets worse? What can we actually expect? What's the practical application for this? What happens if you get saved halfway through the rapture? Do you manage to sneak in or do you have to wait for the second bus? So then you try and figure it out yourself. You can form your own theories, adopt someone else's. And then after the cool and weird and puzzleness goes away, we thank God that we don't have to figure out the future right now and often put the book away and forget about it for a while. And honestly, it's a hard book to apply. We begin with these letters that are of instructive value to all churches, but are past that we're in uncharted territory. There's nothing else in the Bible quite like the book of Revelation. 
There's nothing like it because it's this powerful vision of what is to finally come and how all the work of God ties up in its conclusion. Now this kind of thing sort of comes up in other places in prophetic texts like Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah. But never with this kind of finality because an ancient Jew who was reading, say, the scroll of Isaiah would see the strange symbolism but would have a reasonable expectation that at some point another prophet was going to come along later and make it clear what that guy meant. Events unfold, prophecies occur, and then prophets prophesy again, and the words of the old prophets become focused by the new ones. Scripture interprets scripture. But John's revelation is a closed book. It ends with an injunction to beware anyone who would change a word of it, either adding to it or taking away from it. That's it. This is all we get. It will never be more clear than it is now. And if most of what we do now when we travel through this book is remark at how cool and weird and puzzling it may be and then kind of forget about it again, we may be selling it short. So I want to equip us a little bit better. I want to uh, talk about the kinds of things we are going to encounter when we get into that series. And hopefully when we get there, we'll be a little bit more equipped to tackle it and take away something slightly more permanent than the way I have previously felt. So I want to talk particularly about... um, imagery about themes and about promises and how we handle each of those as we encounter those in scripture particularly in the book of revelation these are three tools that we can use to help us better use what revelation gives us these imagery these themes and these promises now naturally we're doing a pretty broad flyover of the book of revelation here so the more in-depth study is going to come progressively in the weeks to come but we can take these things and add them to our toolkit so that when we get there, we're better equipped to deal with them. Both here and in our life groups and in our quiet times. So before we go on, it needs to be said that Revelation will never make a lot of sense unless you engage the Bible in a long-term intentional Bible study. You can't pull something like that out of Scripture and expect it to make sense unless you're acquainted with the material. The same can be said of other books in the Bible, but none more so than Revelation. The more we study the whole counsel of God, this whole canon of scripture, the whole lot that God has given us, the more regularly and intentionally we do that over our lives, the more we are equipped to understand any given part of it and particularly those difficult parts of it. There's a hedge industry of books devoted to Bible codes and secret tips about shortcutting your way through Revelation and most of that is hogwash. There's no shortcut to understanding the Bible. Neither individual books or the whole slab of it. There's no shortcut, but there are plenty of ways to get lost. And having a handle on imagery and themes and promises is a good way to keep on track. So, imagery, themes and promises. And for each of these, we're going to look at what it is, how not to use it, and what now to do with it. So the what, the how not, and the what now. Now the reading that we began with is a good example of imagery. Okay, Or symbolism or picture languages are all reasonably interchangeable terms. But this imagery we get is a lot about lampstands at the start. It's using one image or a symbol to portray truth about something else. The Old Testament is rife with imagery. The New Testament is rife with imagery. Sometimes it's a poetic device. Other times it's just dropped into conversation. In the case we've just read, 
from Zechariah and Revelation, the imagery we're given is of lamps and lamp stands. They're instruments for dispensing light. And the light imagery is shot through the Bible literally from day one, from the first day of creation, let there be light. And there was light, and he saw that it was good. Genesis 1 verses three to four. So while God is literally the author of light from the first day of creation, the imagery of light and lamps and lampstands persists through scripture. Typically it's associated with God's favor, with his action, his enlightening of people with wisdom. One of the plagues in Exodus was to cover the Egyptians in darkness and reserve light only for his people. Jesus himself is called the light. He calls his followers the light. And when we arrive in the New Jerusalem in Revelation, in Revelation 21-23, we hear that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. This is the consistent use of this imagery of light from Genesis to Revelation. It keeps coming through. So that's the what. Now for the how not, how not to handle imagery. Don't force it. Symbols aren't to be taken completely literally. Is there actually a room in heaven filled with lampstands that is occasionally glimpsed by prophets but does nothing else? Probably not. It's a vision, the lamps mean things. In the case of Revelation, Jesus helpfully tells us the lamps here refer to seven churches. Or as a sharper example, later on in Revelation 5, we're eventually going to encounter a vision of the Lamb of God, which goes like this in Revelation 5, verses 5 to 6. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of a throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now many brave artists have attempted through history to draw what John said he saw, and it almost universally turns out looking awful like that. That's the least horrifying example that I could find. Because it's not meant to be taken as a literal description of what Christ will look like in those days. We do not worship a mutant sheep. He has lion-like qualities and lamb-like qualities. It's a word picture. It is imagery for us to understand. Now, move that one away. I don't want that anymore. Okay. (laughs) Very distracting. (laughs) But he's lion-like and lamb-like. He's lion-like in that he is strong and regal and majestic. He is lamb-like in that he became a sacrifice for our sins. He has seven horns because horns are about power and ferocity and how creatures overcome one another. And seven eyes because he sees everything. And he knows everything. We do not worship a mutant sheep. This is a word picture. So we also need to be aware that while the symbolism can be carried throughout all of scripture, the thing it symbolizes is not necessarily the same every time, which sounds confusing, but bear with me. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it is not. For example, the lampstands we discussed in Revelation represent the seven churches. The lampstand in Zechariah has a different meaning 
The lampstand there has seven lamps that are all piped directly into these two olive trees, like they're getting a, a constant feed of olive oil without anyone needing to engage with them. It's a picture of how God is fully accomplished without need for anyone's help. God being sufficient through the work of his spirit. In the temple, in the, uh, in the ancient temple of the Jews, that no longer stands, obviously, but there was a grand lampstand. And in this vision, all the tedious work normally done by the Levites, who have to come in and refill it with oil over and over again, is automatically done. It does not require the strength of men to accomplish it. This is a vision showing God as sufficient. So we can't always say, whenever you see lamps in Scripture, that's a symbol for churches. That simply doesn't work. It does require a little care to engage these things. So that's the what and the how not. What about the what now we do with this stuff? What use are symbols if we can't rely on them to be the same every time? Well, for a start, these constant symbolic passages hold Scripture together. They tie the whole thing together. We can appreciate more clearly how the one Spirit of God inspired and drew together all the Scriptures because of the common symbols employed from the earliest text to the latest ones over thousands of years. And just because a particular symbol, like lampstands, is used two different ways, doesn't mean we can't understand it or use it well. We're told both that Jesus is the Lion of Judah and that Satan is prowling around like a lion looking for people to devour. You have lion imagery in both cases, but opposite meaning. So it only takes us a little bit of thought and understanding, however, to see what is meant by that. Christ is a lion because of his majestic and powerful qualities. Satan is regarded as like a lion because he is vicious and dangerous. So being ready to handle imagery like this is half the battle. And once you engage with it like that, the whole issue of Revelation as this puzzling and strange book starts to become a lot more handleable and less weird. And as soon as someone tells you, for example, that the number seven calls back to the days of creation and usually refers to something being complete or whole, things get a lot less weird if you're willing to take a little bit of care and interest in applying that. Of course, the lamb has seven eyes and seven horns and there are seven churches. You get the picture. So that's imagery. Now about themes and what do we mean by themes? So related to all this imagery stuff, we have biblical themes which are recurring important elements which are critical to the message of Scripture. They're recurring important elements that are critical to the message of Scripture. And there are themes that are much stronger in some books than in others. The theme of suffering is very strong in the book of Job. By contrast, the theme of love is no stronger than the theme of suffering, but in the book of John. And there's themes like that that run all the way through Scripture. Kingdom, sin, the covenant of God, blessings and curses, the father-son relationship, the husband-wife relationship. Being able to identify and grasp these themes as they're brought up for us is one of the best rewards of frequently and intentionally studying Scripture. If you're familiar with the theme of, for example, cleanness and uncleanness, that you get through the Old Testament, then you're better able to understand why everyone 
was freaking out when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and starts touching a leper. And then the leper becomes clean instead of Jesus becoming unclean. So my personal favorite theme, for example, is the theme of the temple and the garden. In Genesis, the first image of a place that man meets with God that we get is that of the Garden of Eden. It's verdant with plants and rivers and the tree of life is there and man is driven out because of his sin. And the garden where he used to meet God is now guarded by cherubim, a particular brand of angel. The place where man meets God is that theme. And from here on out, the garden becomes a kind of imagery that is used to recall where man used to meet God and his need to meet with God. So we shouldn't be surprised that when it comes time to make a temple much later, the people are instructed in 1 Kings chapter 6 to carve the panels on the inside of the temple with flowers and gourds and gardeny stuff, garden imagery to remind them of that time they once met directly with God. And golden statues of cherubim are in the temple, even on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. This is all symbolism to remind both the ancient Jews and modern readers about the garden where man used to meet God. And when the temple gets destroyed, it's like being kicked out of the garden all over again. And when Jesus says, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, He's referring to himself as Jesus, the one we go to to meet God. The theme is carried through and important to apply. And at the end of our series on Revelation, we're going to get to a scene in chapters 21 and 22, which involves this glorious new city, New Jerusalem. It's oddly cube-shaped. Why? Because the temple was cube-shaped. And this is the place where we, we will once again meet with God. It's not just a temple, it's a city big enough to house every believer inside. And inside that giant city temple, there are rivers and two trees of life and gardeny things. The believers are in the presence of God as they were in the garden, now better with two trees of life rather than one, no tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So you can see that theme is carried the whole way through. And being able to grasp that unlocks a great deal of the mystery of Revelation. But what do we have to be aware of when we're engaging with themes? How do we not use them? What do we need to be aware of to handle them well? Well, don't force it. Not every theme is present in every place in the Bible. That's why we need the whole thing. We can't jam the theme of sin into the book of Esther, for example. The book of Esther is about justice and the survival of the Jewish people in exile. And it has very little to say about sin or the temple or, for that matter, even God. But it does paint a picture of the chosen people and how they act when they're in exile. There's a saying that goes, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. Don't fall into the trap of looking for the theme of the Bible or you risk mischaracterizing parts of it, missing it, and twisting God's word. So what do we now do when we look for these themes? Well, we acknowledge that the message of the Bible comes out in a great many themes. 
not just a few, many of which run through the whole thing, many of which end in the book of Revelation and began in the book of Genesis. But Revelation is where any given theme has to end because it's the last book we got. And the only way we can ever connect those dots is by regularly and intentionally studying the whole thing. Now, usually a theme will revolve around a particular event and it'll use imagery to point back or forward to that event. So man once dwelled in the Garden of Eden with God and was cast out. Ever since then, garden and temple imagery is pointing back to that event and carrying that theme of meeting with God. Jesus paid the one and only sacrifice on the cross for the sins of believers and for all the sins of believers. And that sacrifice imagery from Abel's sacrifice in Genesis 4 to Abraham preparing to sacrifice his son, all the way up to Jesus' coming is pointing forward to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. That imagery is pointing to a theme which is perfected in the image of Jesus Christ. And when we run into symbolism in Revelation and elsewhere, it's important to look for the theme it's carrying and the event it's pointing to. And when you start doing that, the whole thing begins to seem a lot less puzzling. So that's imagery and theme. And finally, we're looking at promises. We must look out for these promises. They're exactly what they sound like. Anytime God promises something in Scripture, we can trust he will fulfill it. And because Revelation represents the end of the world as we know it, then by the time we finish chapter 2 of Revelation, we can expect any promise of God to be fulfilled because that's the end of the world. So when God declares in Genesis 3 that the serpent of the garden will have his head crushed by the hero born of woman, we can take that imagery to know that it will be fulfilled in Revelation, that imagery concerning the defeat of Satan finally once and for all. And that theme carries the promise from God that he who has the power to make all things happen will make that happen. And we have, for example, a much more direct promise that God will establish a king coming out of First Chronicles 17. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So whenever God promises something forever, you can count on it being fulfilled in the book of Revelation. So how do we not use these promises of God? Well, the worst thing we can do is miss them entirely. The Bible is full of God making declarations about what he will do and promising things to his people. That he will send a king from the line of David, for example. That the head of the serpent will be crushed. There will be a day when all nations and all people worship him together in peace. It's possible to coast along waving off these promises because they're hard for us to grasp right now. Christ being promised to us as an actual eternal king is good, but 
the idea of being ruled over by an actual king who really influences my life is kind of foreign to most people. It's certainly foreign to me. So it's a challenge for me to genuinely apply that to my life. But these are promises that have sustained God's people through the harshest times in their history over thousands of years. Literally, it is the promises of God that the Jews clung to that allowed them to remain the same people they began as, as they went through history. To remain a people group so long while every other ancient people group transformed into something new. It's the promises of God that gave them their identity because they were defined by the covenant that God established with them, the promise he made with them. You will be my people, I will be your God. And if we read over God's promise that he will wipe away all tears and one day there will be no more pain, we do well to take that promise seriously and give it some weight. So what we can do with God's promises is try to give them that weight. Hold God to them. He can handle it. If you encounter in your study group or private reading an occasion in Scripture where God promises something to his people, take a note of it. Become familiar with what God has declared he will do. As we travel through Revelation, take note of the themes that we encounter, sin, the temple, the end of Satan, and ask the question, is there a promise attached to that theme? When did God make that promise? Where is it promised that he will destroy sin and death or restore the closeness between man and God as it was once in the garden? When you're doing these things, you can take a moment to honor how the whole Bible holds together on these promises. All the scripture is connected by these images and these themes and these promises. And once we have those tools, then John's vision stops being weird and a woolly end bit of the Bible and starts being the perfect culmination of everything that came before it. So that's it. Those are the three tools that will better prepare us to engage with the weird and cool and puzzling book of Revelation over the next weeks. They're not a shortcut to better biblical literacy, to having a better grasp on that book, but they are the best thing you can do to understand scripture better right now. The best thing you can do is to read more of it. The best thing you can do to work yourself up to read more of it is to become more interested in scripture. And the best way to become more interested in Scripture is to expand your skills and your techniques and the way that you read Scripture. God's given us an incredible gift in his written word, one which reveals his character to us and gives us the power to make sense of a fallen world. May he who has given this to us also make us fit to understand it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your holy word. You give the light that illuminates the darkness, and we're just thankful to bask in your glory. Lord, help us when we leave this place today to take our passion with us. Not to leave our reverence for your word inside this church, but to carry it with us into our quiet times in our home groups and our homes. Equip us to understand what you've written down for us. Make it clear to us, God, the words that you are saying. And we ask that you aid us in applying your word in addition to reading it, Lord, so that everyone can know that you are the God who exists and who has spoken in this world. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.